Hey there, Pastor Mark Jordan here from Hope Church. Thank you for stopping by and welcome to our online ministry. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our podcast so you can stay up to date on all the content that's released. And while you're online, visit us at our webpage at placeofhope.org. Hope Church is on a mission to introduce people to Jesus and fuel their love for Him. And we hope that this message today is helpful and inspiring for you as you continue to take your next step on your faith journey. Once again, thanks for visiting us and make sure to check us out at placeofhope.org. Well, good morning, everybody. I have a little message from Billy Graham to get us kicking off this morning. How about that, right? So we are working through our series entitled The Power of Three. We talked the very first installment of this message about how God exists in pure, perfect relationship as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the last week, we looked at it a little bit more closely in terms of how God's love for us is manifest in a word that we call grace, and how there are three different ways that we understand in our Wesleyan tradition of Christianity, the way that we understand grace in terms of how God's grace exists for us before we're aware of it. God's grace convicts us of our sin and lets us know that we need a Savior, Jesus, and then how God's grace works within our lives to make us more like Jesus or to sanctify us or to move us onward and closer to perfection. And so that's how we have gotten to this point today. And today, as Billy Graham kind of gave us the, the clue, we are talking more about salvation in Jesus. And so this would be a good time, if you've not done so already, to pull out your Hope Church Plus app where you can find the follow-along notes. Uh, and you also can find them inserted in your info guide. Uh, folks who may be worshiping with us online, uh, our website apparently is having a glitch right now, and so the page that I put uh, so that you could access them online is not available. Hopefully it will be live, maybe live right now for all I know, but um, it wasn't about 10 minutes ago. So you can uh, check that out a little bit later on, and we'll make sure to share those as well. Uh, while you're doing that, I, want, I do want to take a quick moment of personal privilege because we've had so many people ask for an update on what's going on in our lives and in our adoption journey. Uh, and so I thought I would just take a quick moment, again, of personal privilege to let you know. Uh, it was at the end of August when Pastor Brent uh, had a prayer over us here at the front of the altar, uh, Tiffany, Ethan, my mom and me, uh, because we had reached a point where it just seemed like we were hitting one brick wall after another. Uh, I don't exactly know what it is other than the power of prayer, right? Uh, but some of those roadblocks have been lifted and have been moved. And so we found out this past week that the birth mother who was missing had been located, and she did indeed sign off on the adoption. And so... We are, we are thrilled. It is still not 100% there yet. It won't be 100% until we get home <laughs> so, uh, from Taiwan. But it, we are on a very, very uh, promising uh, trajectory. And so I want to thank you for your prayers. And please keep them coming. Please keep them coming. We're going to be in a process now where there's going to be kind of a lull for several months while the bureaucracies, I mean the governments in Taiwan and, and the United States of America begin to communicate with each other. Uh, so we've submitted our paperwork to say we want to adopt this child, and Taiwan has now sent paperwork, or is sending paperwork over to the Customs and Immigration Services that said this is the child that this family is trying to adopt, and then it could take uh, anyway from a couple weeks to a couple months for all that to get put together. And so we are just in a waiting phase until we get the go-ahead. So we're in, a, we're in a waiting phase, but uh, as of right now, that's where we stand. Uh, I still have some uh, really good pictures of a cute little baby. We can't put them uh, where they could be seen online, but if you ask really nicely, Tiffany, my mom, may be happy to show you. Um, they're now the wallpaper on my phone and my iPad, so it's really easy for me to open it up. But anyway, that's all, all that being said, uh, I want to get back into our content, which is really why you're here today. Uh, 
we are talking again about the power of three and salvation in Jesus. Uh, this message essentially works as the linchpin, if you will, the fulcrum for this entire series. Next week, we're going to talk about uh, relationships in light of eternity. But today, we're talking about salvation in Jesus. And one of the primary questions that people have and people come to is, why did Jesus have to die? Right? Why did Jesus have to die? We see in the scripture that God is a God of mercy, right? God is a God of grace. We talked about that last week. And it would be easy for us to look at that and say, well, God could, yeah, you know, sin, man, just whatever. Just come on in, right? God is a God of grace, of mercy, but God is also a God of judgment and of order and of justice. God said from the very beginning that sin is what separates us from a relationship with him. And God wouldn't just wipe away the threat or power of sin over us. I'm sorry, the threat of sin. I didn't say that very well, so forget what I just said the last five seconds. God would not just remove uh, the fear of sin from us because sin still does separate us. But what God decided to do was remove the power that sin holds over us. And so he sent Jesus. So today's message, we're going to look at what led to that point where Christ died on the cross for our sins, but also what happened while Jesus was in the grave for those three days. So I'm excited about it. I hope that you are too. Our preview verse for this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, the ninth chapter, verses 30, verse 31. And this is where you see on the screen, Jesus was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Now, a couple things I want to point out really quickly here. When Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, he also has at times referred to himself as the Son of God. But the Son of Man uh, is that linking, so to speak, that points to how Jesus' presence is eternal. Even though he is of the flesh, he was born of Mary, uh, and he would later suffer and die. When Jesus talks about himself in the frame of Son of Man, he is talking to anyone who would hear and listen to say, look, I am eternal in nature, even though I I have flesh and bone and hair and skin. I am eternal in nature. And so Jesus told the disciples this, that the Son of Man was coming, he was there, but he was going to be delivered into the hands of sinners, and they will kill him. And after he is killed three days, he will rise again. One of the common questions that comes is how in the world do we see mid-afternoon on Friday afternoon, and first thing Sunday morning is three days. You came to the right place to ask that question. Has anyone ever, ever wondered that? How do, we, how do we calculate that? Well, in the Jewish tradition, a day actually began at sunset the night before the day that we call it. So like when Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath is on Saturday, and the Sabbath would actually begin at sundown on Friday. So from sundown on Friday, and you read that in the Gospels after Jesus was executed, from sundown on Friday, the Jews had to go into a time of Sabbath rest. And it did not end until daybreak on Sunday morning. And so they spent that time in that Sabbath rest. And so even just a moment, if you will, a, a minute within what we would consider a day, counts as a day. So Jesus went into the grave on Friday before sundown. That counts Friday. Saturday is counted as well. But the fact that we see in the gospel narratives, the resurrection stories, that when dawn occurred, that was when he rose from the grave. And so in Jewish nomenclature, calendaring, timing, he spent Friday, Saturday, and Sunday in the grave, even though it was just a minute. 
It's kind of like what I did the other night when I slept really, really late, and I needed to make sure that I met all the goals on the fitness tracker of my Apple Watch. And I needed to make sure that I got my 12 hours of, of, active, movement, of active movement. And I made it, but I wanted to make sure that yesterday I was really, really prepared and primed to have a good day. So when we went to bed about midnight, first thing Saturday morning, Friday night, I made sure that I brushed my teeth and got, and got a minute of movement in on my Apple Watch. So that as far as my watch was concerned, I had been moving from 12 a.m. to 1 a.m. Even though just one minute on the Apple Watch, it counted for an entire hour on Saturday morning, even though I was well in bed by the time 1 o'clock rolled around. That's kind of like timekeeping in the Jewish tradition. The Jewish traditions held that even a moment of that day would count as the day. And so when dawn rises on Sunday morning, dawn comes and the sun rises on Sunday morning, and we see Jesus walk out of the tomb, it is as though he is saying, I can't wait another minute in here. I'm busting out of this joint. And so Jesus came forth. On the third day, he rose again. So Jesus did not want to waste a single moment in the process and the power of bringing salvation to us. But why did he have to die in the first place? Why the cruelty of God sending his one and only son to suffer the torture and the mutilation and the humiliation of the cross? Well, it's because of sin. And it goes back to the creation narrative. And when God was talking to Adam and Eve and said, basically, you can enjoy all of the fruit from the trees in the garden except this one tree in the middle, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. You have your Pizza Hut tree. You've got your Taco Bell tree. You've got your Arby's tree. Just don't eat from this tree. And of course, well, there really wasn't a Taco Bell tree. It was a Del Taco tree, but, you know, I preferred. Are y'all with me today? Anyway, all right, all right, all right. But the whole idea of forbidden fruit, right? You've heard that phrase, forbidden fruit. That's what it's talking about. As soon as Adam and Eve realized they weren't supposed to eat the tree of, or the fruit from this tree, they're like, boy, that, that fruit sure does look tasty. And so the enemy comes in and talks to them through a serpent and asks, did God really say? I love that. That question is the root of temptation that every single one of us faces. It doesn't matter what it is, right? Did God really say you can't eat of that or you will die? So Eve succumbed to the temptation. You got Adam to eat the fruit too. And they were there in that moment, realized that they were naked. Now, some of you who did not grow up in Georgia may know that as naked, but we've always called it naked. And so Adam and Eve realized that they were naked. And they go into hiding. And God comes in, he start walk, starts walking through the garden, he's calling out to Adam and Eve. Of course, he knows where they are, but he asks the question, where are you? And then Adam and Eve were like, well, we're hiding because we're naked. And God asks, well, who told you that you were naked? And so from that point forward, God slaughtered an animal to provide clothing for them through the skin. And so we see that from the very first sin, it took the shedding of blood in order to cover the vulnerability, to cover the nakedness, to cover our true natural state from our physical birthday suit into the reality that we lay bare 
or as we would talk about in our, bank, in our um, Beatitude series, the bankruptcy of our spirituality, we are absolutely vulnerable and bare in front of God. Genesis chapter 3, verse 21 says, The Lord made for Adam and Eve, and for his wife, garments of skin and clothed them. This is the very beginning, the root, the essence, so to speak, of what the Jewish religion would come and talk about, the sacrificial nature of their religion. Whenever they would sin, they would have to sacrifice animals. From the moment Adam and Eve sinned and they realized that they were naked and God had to slaughter an animal to create skins of clothing for them, what, they, what was instituted there and then was this sacrificial system that said blood must be spilled to cover us with our sins. This fast forwards into the Exodus journey. You remember, remember uh, on the Passover night, which we celebrate that with Holy Communion. We do that in the church. But the Passover night, we see that they took uh, blood from, an, from a lamb and they spread it on the doorposts as though to say, we are covered. The spirit of death can pass over us. So there has been a connection from Adam and Eve and their sin in the Garden of Eden the spilling of blood and the covering of our vulnerability and the covering of our sin. And this fast forwards into the work that Jesus did. We read in Romans chapter 3, verses 25 through 26, and we're going to be talking really quickly about the doctrine of the atonement and substitution. Atonement and substitution. But you see these words here that come from Romans chapter 3, verses 25 through 26. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. You see what happens here? No longer is it a pigeon or a goat or a bull. It is a son. Jesus was presented by God the Father as the sacrifice for all of our sin. And then Paul continues, people are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his what? Blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair, right? And it seems cruel and almost impossible for us to think about God giving his one and only son to cover us for our sins. But the Bible tells us that God is being fair. And he continues by saying, when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past, for he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. Can you tell I'm getting excited about this? Ooh, Jesus, Jigan. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. We're talking again about the doctrine of atonement and substitution. Paul writes here a couple things that are really important. He says, God is just and God is fair. God doesn't just say, yeah, sandwich man, whatever. You go, do, you go do you, right? There has to be a penalty and a covering for sin. But you know what? Because we are sinful creatures, every last single one of us, there's nothing we can do to cover our sins. Anything that we would do would be temporary until the next time we had an impure thought or we said an impure word, or we did an impure deed, or even if we didn't realize we weren't obeying God. Sins of omission, sins of commission, our ability to try to cover and justify our own sinfulness is temporary at best. And so God sent Jesus, the sinless one. And because Jesus had no sin when he went to the cross, God heaped sin on Jesus' shoulders, which we kind of feel when Christ cries out, my God, oh my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, Jesus felt as though he was separated from God. He had never experienced that before. And in that moment, the weight and the power and the fear and the threat of sin that was on Christ gave him a feeling like he was alone, he was isolated. 
He felt horrible and terrible. But what God was doing by, see, by heaping sin on Jesus' shoulders, he wasn't just forgiving and canceling the sins that we had committed, but he was even canceling and defeating the power that sin holds and has over all of us. So he died for your sin, but he also died for your bent toward sinning. And so now we have the grace and the mercy that brings both sides of that proverbial coin of salvation for you and for me. And God did this by sacrificing Jesus and shedding his blood so that we all could know what it means to experience and to find salvation. But there's something else in this passage that we cannot overlook that ties what happens in Genesis and what happens to our new Genesis or our new creation that ties it all together. We see that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past, for he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. This helps to answer the question about what did God do for the sins of people who lived and committed sins before Christ came, or when they died before Christ died. This is the answer. What the scriptures tell us is that Christ's death was a once and for all solution for our sin. Past, present, and yes, even future. And so when we look at the doctrine of the atonement, this is, one of the, this is the only English theological word because it actually means at one meant. That Christ's death on the cross removed that separation, that barrier that exists as a chasm, so to speak, between us and God. It removed that and enabled and empowered us to be made one with God at one moment. And because there's nothing you or I could do to accomplish that miraculous feat, Jesus had to be the substitute for the sacrifice and the sin that we committed. That's what the doctrine of substitution means. The Apostle Paul would write later that he became sin who knew no sin. Talking about Jesus. Jesus became sin, even though he had not sinned at all in his life. So that we could become the righteousness of God. And so now what happens, this is a beautiful, miraculous thing. That a gift that God gives us through his grace. What he does is he covers us with that blood of Jesus. So that it works kind of like a polyurethane on us. Right? He sees who we are, the original, unique aspects of us. Our hair, or lack thereof, our wrinkles, our smooth skin, our, uh, our wonderful beards like the one I'm growing. I'm kidding. I'm glad to shave this morning. But he sees us. But what he does is he sees us through that love and that grace of Jesus. This is the justification that we talked about last week. When we accept Christ into our lives, it is as though he is covering us with his blood so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see us with our ickiness. He sees us through the purifying and cleansing blood of Jesus. Jesus became sin, our sin, your sin, my sin, individually and corporately. Jesus became sin so that you and I could become the righteousness of God. That's a justification. And so when we come from the other side of it, what we are trying to, and striving to do is to live to be more like Jesus. Friends, this is the, the baptism action that we see when you go under the water, whether you're immersed, poured, or dunked, or sprinkled. When you go under the water, you say, I am dying to my old, worn out, burned out way of living so I can rise again and rise into the grace and the peace of God. Jesus died so that you would not have to. Jesus experienced that separation from God so that you would not have to.
And he did this as our once and for all solution for our sins as well as our individual bent toward sinning. So this means we get salvation through Jesus. Just like his blood covers us, we get salvation through Jesus. But pay attention to this as we look at Romans chapter 5 verse 15. The free gift of Christ is not like Adam's failure. Genesis 3, we see Paul connecting Jesus and Adam. If many people died through that, what that one person did wrong, God's grace is multiplied even more for many people with the gift of the one person, Jesus Christ, that comes through what? Say grace. So what the Apostle Paul is doing here is he is drawing this line, this direct line from Adam's sin in the garden. When he answered the question, did God really say? And he took the bite of the apple and he says, I'm naked, right? He's drawing this direct line from Adam to Jesus. The Apostle Paul would also refer to Jesus at other points as the new Adam, the new creation, the new model for humanity. So just as Adam sinned and brought sin on everybody, Christ's once and for all sacrifice by the shedding of his blood brings salvation for everybody. This is one of the reasons in the gospel narratives, and John in particular, when we read about the resurrection of Jesus, we see that Mary mistakes Jesus for the gardener. In the Gospel of John, when Jesus is resurrected, Mary, who goes to the tomb first, mistakes Jesus for the gardener. Could it be that Jesus was taking his, maybe his holy hoe, or his righteousness rake, right? Or sanctifying spade? That's about all the gardening tools I can think of right now off the top of my head. And Jesus was repairing the damage that Adam did in the Garden of Eden. I think it's a beautiful thought. If Jesus was mistaken as a gardener, there's a reason. He's probably doing some gardening there. And the beauty of it that we see is that Jesus is repairing and correcting the damage to creation that happened when Adam and Eve committed their sin. But Jesus did die on the cross. Again, it's hard sometimes for people to fathom that God would send his one and only son to die for you and me. Now we see in the Romans passage we talked about a few minutes ago that God is fair and just. And even in those moments he was looking ahead knowing what he would do. The same is true for Christ's horrible execution. Excruciating execution on the cross. You know we get the word excruciating because of crucified, because of crucifixion. They're connected. Jesus suffered, but he suffered once so he can become our once and for all solution. And this gets us to one of the things that is of great mystery for those in the Christian faith about what happened those three days when Jesus was in the grave. It's also known as the harrowing of hell. Isn't that cool? The harrowing of hell. In other words, we're bringing hell to hell. Imagine. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 20, the first part of verse 20. Christ also suffered. Talking about sin again. He died once for the sins of all of us guilty sinners, although he himself was innocent of any sin at any time, that he might bring us safely home to God. But though his body died, his spirit lived on. 
And it was in the Spirit that he visited the spirits in prison and preached to them. Spirits are those who, long before, in the days of Noah, had refused to listen to God. Something miraculous happened when Jesus' death occurred. He was very, very dead. Right, all of a sudden I hear in the back of my head here, I'm not going to sing it for you, but, you know, like at the, in the Wizard of Oz, it's coroner, I must have her, I thoroughly examined her. And it's coroner, I must have her, I thoroughly examined her. And she's not only merely, merely dead, she's really most sincerely dead. Okay, let's talk about the Wicked Witch of the East. And so, I thought that was pretty good. Anyway, <laughs> Jesus was really dead. There were some who were thinking, well, maybe Jesus didn't really die. Maybe he just went into a, a coma or shock or something. He passed out. Jesus underwent the most excruciating, damaging, disfiguring, torturous death that he could have experienced at any time. It's still the most gruesome form of execution that humanity has ever devised. So that there could be no second guessing. Because when Jesus appeared later, all of the disciples, all the people who had witnessed his execution could not believe that he was there standing in front of them because he had been so horribly disfigured. He had been so tremendously and terrifically tortured. It was right then and there that Jesus proved that with his resurrection, he was given his new body. Now he still carried the wounds in his hands and his side that Thomas placed his hands into, shoved his hands into as Jesus invited but he did that so that there could be some proof that he is the one who suffered the torture and the death that he experienced his body lay dead in the grave but as peter tells us and the apostle paul talks similarly about this in ephesians chapter 4 but as what peter tells us it was the spirit of jesus that actually went down and took hell to hell now in the jewish thought and in this pre-Armageddon world that we live in, there is a temporary holding space, at least this is the, the theology or the thought about it, the theory. There's this temporary waiting room, if you will, for eternity. Old Testament referred to it as Sheol. The New Testament referred to as Hades. This is not the permanent hell or paradise, as it were. And so the Catholics have devised their theory of purgatory to go kind of around this as well. Now, as Methodist Christians, we don't really believe in this. We believe in the immediate transporting of the body and the soul, well, not the body, but the soul, to heaven or hell. But there's this theory that was tossed around and talked about where Jesus actually went to the spirits in hell and proved to the fallen angels God's power. And he really brought the torture and the reality of the permanent separation of God to those who had utterly and completely rebelled against God. But also for those who are in the waiting room, so to speak, for paradise, known as Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom, Jesus led them into eternal paradise with God. This is what is known as the harrowing of hell. We see in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells a parable called the rich man and Lazarus, where we get a little bit of this idea. And so what it talks about is there's this great chasm that separates the reality of paradise, so to speak, and Abraham's bosom and Hades or Sheol. And what makes it so torturous 
is that the people who are in the side of punishment can see the side of paradise. Now, wouldn't that be hell? If you are in torment and you see someone else in joy. Think about it like if you know your friends are together at a party or something and you didn't get invited to it. How that eats at you. It makes you feel less than. It makes you feel worthless or unliked, rejected. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus says that there's this chasm here where the people who are in torment are able to see the people who are in paradise. And it makes them yearn and long for it. And the harrowing of hell is Jesus himself going into that and revealing himself to all the fallen angels and all those who've rebelled against God to say the power of God is real. And now your torture and your eternity is set. But as we read from Romans and we see from the mission in the heart of God that it was in that moment that Christ led all of those who had died previous to his ministry on earth. Christ led them to heaven. Christ led them to paradise. Friends, Jesus is still in the saving business. And as we are experiencing this world as we are, we get these glimpses of paradise and punishment, don't we? We get these glimpses of these times, these moments where we just feel so ensconced in the love and the grace and the protection of God. But there are also those times we feel that isolation, that separation, that pain. And it can be hard for us to make sense of it. It can be hard for us to make sense of the perpetual paradise when we still experience death and mourning and grieving and sickness and violence and anger and all the things that feel like punishment to us. We feel like we're stuck between two realities, and we kind of are. But what the Scripture tells us is that when we call on the name of the Lord Jesus, we are experiencing the power of his salvation, the solution to our once and for all sin problem right here in the moment. And so it gives us a whole brand new, renewed perspective about the problems and the junk and the hell that we experience on earth. The power that we have of God's love and God's resurrecting grace in our lives right here and right now gives us the perspective that helps us to know that the worst thing that happens to us can never be the last thing that happens to us. Can I get a witness? That even when we experience sickness, that our God is the great physician. Even when we experience loneliness and grief, our God is the wonderful counselor. And even when we are experiencing hell on earth, Jesus is there to prove that he is in the business of leading people out of hell and into paradise. To be with him forever. Jesus still is in the salvation business. He still rescues. Now, what the enemy wants to try to convince you of is that you've got to be, you've got to do, you've got to say, you've got to think, you've got to act perfectly, whatever, right? Like you've got to earn your salvation. You've got to earn your place in the heart of God. That's what the enemy wants to try to convince you. 
What the scripture tells us is that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the entire verse. It didn't say for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord and has given 10% plus more to the church this year will be saved. Or everyone who calls on the name of the Lord and has perfect attendance in worship for 2023 will be saved. Or everyone who calls on the name of the Lord and instead of watching the news this morning and listening to worship music will be saved. There's no stipulations. There are no ifs, no ands, no buts. The scripture tells us that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's because in calling on the name of Jesus, it requires us to believe in our heart and to confess with our mouth that Jesus is who he said he is. And that he's still in the rescuing business. And imagine what it's like when we are going through, walking through what feels like the pit of hell sometimes on this earth and in this reality. When we see evidence of Christ showing up and God showing out that lets us know that we are never alone. When we accept Jesus, he covers us with his sacrificial blood and washes us of our sin problem once and forever. And the enemy's going to try to convince you that after you've accepted Jesus, the next time you slip into a sin, that oh, it's over. Just like Monopoly, you got to go to straight to jail. Don't pass go. Don't collect your $200 which right now might buy you a couple days worth of groceries, right? But still, (laughs) it's a once and for all solution. When you call on the name of the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. This is exactly what Jesus did when he spent those three days in the grave. He broke the power of sin and hell over you and me. So that as he appears, even in the midst of the hellish experiences that we go through in life, we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that God is real and he loves us. And has a plan and a purpose for our lives. So here are your takeaways for today's message. We all have a sin problem. The devil wants to try to convince you that even once you sin, after you've received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that it discredits you, disqualifies you. It doesn't. Don't listen to him. We will all need, at those times, to come face to face with our nakedness, so to speak, our vulnerability, and say, dear God, please forgive me. Help me to live for you. Put that grace in my life that is constantly working to sanctify me and to perfect me and mold me and shape me into the image of Jesus. But when Jesus died on the cross, he became your once and for all solution to your sin problem. And if you are walking through a path right now, again, whether it's grief or whether it's illness whether it's problems at work or whether it's problems at home or problems wherever you may be jesus is still walking in the midst of what we know is hell on earth to give us that visual evidence that hope that peace that faith that he is still in the rescuing business and he is still conquering the grave and he will still conquer all the things that make you feel or fear that you've been separated from the love and the grace of god So if you've yet to receive the grace and peace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to rescue you from the power of hell, do not let today pass you by. Let this be your altar call, so to speak, to come and to accept the life-giving and forgiving grace and mercy of God in Jesus Christ. God isn't in the business saying, ah, you know, sinch man, you know, whatever, you go do you. He says there must be a consequence for our sin and our sinfulness, and that consequence has already been paid. Jesus paid the price and he suffered the wrath of God so that you and I may know what it means to be saved. And he is still in the business of showing up even in the midst of our hell on earth. Help us be led back to Jesus. Mr. Fred Rogers is the one who I think 
put it so well when he was a child and would get worked up about all the problems and the calamity in the world. And his mother, you probably heard the story, right? His mother said, don't look at the problems. Look for the helpers. Look for those who are going and showing up to offer help and hope. That's what believers are called to do, to go and help be the hands and the feet of Jesus. You and I can't save anybody from their sins. That's God's work and God's work alone. So our closing question asks this. What can you do? How can you use your life to introduce someone to Jesus so he can lead them out of the experience of hell on earth into a loving and saving relationship with God and God Almighty? So again, that altar call. If you haven't accepted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, let today be the day. And if you feel God putting a nudge and an urge or a nudge in your life to help lead someone else to salvation, I pray that we hear and heed those invitations. Because Christ became sin, who knew no sin, that we could become the righteousness of God. Jesus is the bridge of the chasm that exists where we experience paradise and pain. Jesus is the one who leads us from one to the other. As he went and he defeated hell and he said, nanny, nanny, boo-boo on his way out. He's also calling out to you and to me and saying, come with me and help me lead others to the paradise that awaits them all for those who call on the name of the Lord. They will be saved. As the band comes forward, let's pray together. Almighty God, I thank you for today and I thank you for how you, you took hell to hell. I can only imagine what it must have been like when those defeated demons saw you walking in their territory. It's proof that your love extends into the deepest and the darkest depths of our life and our world. And Lord, may we find hope in that because perhaps there is someone here today who is experiencing the darkest and the deepest depths of our human existence. Whether it's from health problems or grief, the loss of loved ones, or just an uncertainty of all the chaos that we see around us in the world. Help us to know that you show up even in the midst of our hell to lead us out of it and into the hope of eternity. And so for Lord God, and so Lord God, for those who this morning are turning their life to you, I give you thanks, and I know that there are celebrations breaking out in eternity for even one single solitary heart and soul that says, I want to turn to you, Jesus. It's not too late. And I thank you that that is true today, just as it was all those years ago. For your son, Jesus, came and bridged the chasm and the gap from Adam and Eve's first sin in the world in the Garden of Eden to the last sin that we commit and the next sin that we will. And so I pray that we may call on that name of the Lord Jesus, that we may receive the grace and the peace that you have in store for us and even in just one moment begin to experience the power of eternity that is open for you and for me. Almighty God, I lift all this in the holy, helping, healing name of Jesus as we receive his invitation and follow his lead to your side in paradise. It's in the name of Christ, I pray. Amen and amen. Thank you again for joining us today. We are glad that you stopped by. Again, we want to encourage you to visit us online at placeofhope.org. If you're in the Paulding County area there, you can get 
service times, directions, and information about all of our awesome activities for children, for students, and for adults. Again, Hope Church is on a mission to introduce people to Jesus and fuel their love for him, and we hope to provide you the heart fuel you need to follow Jesus. Thanks again.